Well, when you think of uh, something powerful, I wonder what comes to mind. Various things are powerful. I took a wee selfie before it came out. Uh, powerful countries, USA, Russia, Scotland, generally the top three. Powerful cars. Have you heard about this? The Lotus Evija, if that's how you say it. A 2,000 horsepower car. Can you imagine what that's like? A general run-of-the-mill run car is just like 120 brake horsepower. 2,000. That's unbelievable. Powerful athletes like Usain Bolt. Powerful computers like IBM's Summit, the most powerful supercomputer in all the world. Now, each of these has power, and that power has great potential. It's never an idle power. Uh, it's always there to do something. The power is for something. I guess it's like the potential energy that we learn about in physics. Now, I want, I'm starting with that because I believe the Bible teaches us that the promises of God are just like that. They, they are powerful in their own right. They contain power. But that powder is ne power is never meant to sit as an idle thing, just full of potential. It's to be put to use like power does. Power is to be put to use. The power a country holds isn't idle. It's supposed to be used for influence and for good. The power a car holds isn't meant to remain idle. It's meant to be used, like put the foot down, put that power to work within the speed limit, of course. Uh, the power that you see in Bolt has in those thighs and in those hamstrings, well, that's not just idle. That's meant to sprint. And the power Summit has is not idle. It processes as fast as can be. But what about God's promises? What do God's promises do as they contain power? When you stop and think about it for a second, it's not hard to figure it out because we've all made promises, haven't we, of some kind? Um, maybe at some point you have promised a parent that you're going to tidy your room. Uh, maybe at some point you've promised a spouse, lifelong, exclusive relationship in marriage. The point is that when you give someone a promise, there's power in that promise, and it's a power that holds something for the future. But it doesn't just remain a power as such. It does something, like all these other explanations or illustrations that I've given you. It creates or generates uh, expectation of some kind. So we look forward to receiving what is promised. But it also generates action. We live in the light of what is promised. And even in times when we don't have that thing that has been promised, yet we live like we're going to receive it. That's the way a promise works. Now, the Bible contains God's enduring promises to people like us now, Genesis contains, of course, some of the most important made to Adam and Eve, Genesis 3.15, uh, to Noah, uh, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, uh, whose story we are jumping into tonight, Jacob himself. But the truth is, these promises are also for us, generating anticipation, generating action in us. And this is what Genesis 46 and 47 are all about. In what is both a happy and an uncertain time, God is super keen to reassure Jacob, the patriarch in here, that God's promises still stand. And that shouldn't make Jacob stand still. He should be getting to work. Now, what does it generate in him? Well, 
a searching in some sense, a looking, a looking for reassurance in the first instance and a looking for evidence in the second. And those are the two points that we're going to use tonight to hang these uh, verses on. So number one, we're going to look at the promise of God still stands and we can look to God for reassurance. We see this in Genesis 46, 1 to 27. Now, at the start of chapter 46, Jacob is on his way to Egypt for two reasons. Number one, to feed his family. Remember, there's a famine in the land, and his family is starving, but there's grain in Egypt, and his family has an invitation to go there from Pharaoh. Come on, let us look after you, he said, after the brothers have been wonderfully reconciled to Joseph, who rules in Egypt. But secondly, Jacob is on his way to, see, to Egypt to see his son. He has mourned Joseph for 22 years, absolutely refusing to be comforted, wearing his grief like a funeral suit, black every day for two decades. But in chapter 45, verses 25 to 28, we saw that his sons had brought him that unbelievable news, the kind that makes your brain break and your knees give way with emotion. Joseph is still alive, they said, and he is ruler of all Egypt. And Jacob replied, my son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Now, but if you look with me at chapter 46, verse 1, Jacob clearly has something else on his mind. Something that's making him anxious or afraid about this move. But he doesn't despair and he doesn't panic in all this. Instead, what we see is Jacob's situation drove him to God. Look with me, verse 1. Israel, that's Jacob, set out with everything that was his. And when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Now, there are two crucial details in here that we can't miss, right? Firstly, Beersheba, right? Beersheba is a place with a significant history. Abraham once lived there, Genesis 22. Uh, Jacob's father, Isaac, also lived there. In fact, it was Beersheba, that God gave Isaac the promise and handed it down to him. That's Genesis 26. And uh, what did Isaac do on that occasion? He actually built an altar to God himself and sacrificed on that altar. So Jacob is probably offering a sacrifice on the very same altar. Now, so Beersheba has this significant history, but it's also a place with a significant border because it's on the edge of the promised land. Now, the promised land is the place where God had said to his people, you come here and stay here, but here is Jacob leaving there, okay? Stay here, leave there. You can understand why he might be confused. In fact, he's afraid, worried about disobeying God, probably worried about the pagan influence of idolatry in Egypt on his family and what that might mean for the promise. He's dabbled in that himself, remember, and worried, no doubt, that just as God had warned Abraham, his granddad, that before they truly inherit the land of Canaan, the promised land for themselves, there's going to be 400 years of affliction. That's got to be playing on Jacob's mind as he makes these sacrifices. And in fact, that's the second thing to notice in here, not just the place, Beersheba, but the act of sacrifice. These are the prayers. These sacrifices are the prayers of a man who wants forgiveness for sin. No guilt for the journey. 
and an opportunity to share his lingering anxieties about this huge step outside of the promised land to lay it before God. Now, this isn't a sermon holding up Jacob as a model to imitate, but it's worth pausing to ask if, like him in this situation, our situations full of anxieties, concerns, taking next steps, whether those situations drive us to God? Are we ever afraid, uncertain about what course to take? Do we throw caution to the wind or do we cast our anxieties on God's? I mean, we all know that we lack wisdom. We know that we are sinners and sin has this tremendously bad tendency to make us very self-sufficient. But God encourages us to see that alongside a right sense of our own vulnerability, we should look to him for the wisdom and the strength that he gives and not to make sacrifices, but to pray. Jesus said, ask, seek, knock, and it will be given to you. Paul said in Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And then comes peace. Well, that's what Jacob does here. And look at what happens next. In verses 2 and 4, 2 to 4, we see God reiterating the promise, the capital P promise. Okay? Now, this is wonderful because here we see God speaking reassuringly to his children. God says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again, and Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Well, it is all there. The key components of this capital P promise, people, tons of them, presence, God with him, never not there. Three, the place, the land isn't forfeited by traveling to Egypt. Can you imagine how reassuring that was to Jacob at Beersheba about to step out of it? That's an incredible promise. So Jacob looked to God for reassurance and got it, but he also got a personal touch, didn't he? Don't be afraid to go, God says, so he recognizes his fear. He knows him through and through. And then the personal comfort that Jacob would see Joseph is going to get to see the one he longs to see. And never lose him again in this life. That's what's implied in the detail that Joseph's hand would close his eyes. What an incredible reassurance of the future. We don't get that kind of reassurance of particular details of our lives, do we? We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But God gives Jacob this incredible reassurance. And I want to say in the same way God speaks to us today. Not audibly, of course, though verbally. Through his word, God has spoken wonderfully to us. He has not left us without his word. He has not left us without his instruction. He has not left us without his opinion. He's been super clear. And his word is sufficient to tell us of his identity through his word and especially through his son. As Hebrews 1 says, the word who became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And it speaks, he speaks to us too of his promise. We are, you know, we are the great ever-expanding nation in New Testament terms. Not ethnic Israel, but the church. God's chosen family in Christ. And just as he promised 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob back then that he would make them into something great and something for his glory. That's what he said he's going to do through us, the church, beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, through people like me and you. It's incredible. That's his promise, creating a temple for his spirit and essentially a bride for his son. It's a beautiful picture, but that's not all. He promises us his presence on our pilgrimage, if you like. Surely I am with you always, said Jesus, to the very end of the age. And he has not and will not renege on that promise. And he has given us his word concerning our final destination. Our true and better promised land. The new heaven and new earth. The place where righteousness dwells. I could offer you a billion more of the things that God has said. That God has promised but more important right now is to consider the question, do such promises offer you the kind of reassurance that God intends to bring to you through them? Do these promises reassure us when we are uncertain of what lies ahead? And do we receive these promises by faith, trusting that God will do what he says he will do and then acting like it? Promises like these, you see, to Jacob, promises like God's word is to us, you see, is life-shaping. Certainly shapes Joseph, uh, Jacob's life. I mean, that's what we see in verses 5 to 27. Jacob believes this promise of God, and he just acts on it. And he believed God and essentially steps out in faith. By Beersheba, hello Egypt. And he's a chip off old Abraham's block, isn't he? He's off everything he owns, everything he loved, loaded up on Pharaoh's Pickford vans. Uh, and this is proper flitting. The names, this long list of names that we very conveniently avoided, records the 70, the number of completion in the Bible. Now just think, when you think that this was written with Moses as the author writing to encourage God's people beyond the exodus, beyond the 400 years of affliction, as they wait to step into the promised land finally. How significant is this record of Jacob's obedience and Jacob's family 400 years later to them? All they had to do as they stand on the brink of that promised land, was to look around them and see that the 70 had multiplied into the thousands. That's the fruit of Jacob's faith. And actually reassuring proof for them as they take hold of God's promises for themselves and move forward in faith. That's for Israel back then. The promise still stood. And indeed for the church today, God's promises still stand. He is unwaveringly faithful to his own words. And he is with us and for us and using us. So what does the reassurance of God and our subsequent response, the response of faith, produce? It's an important question. I think for Jacob it was a growing family. The, the produce of his faith, of his obedience, was essentially sons and daughters in their thousands from whose bloodline the Messiah himself would come, Jesus Christ. 
But for us also, it's a growing family, not physical sons and daughters, but spiritual. Spiritual sons and daughters as gospel fruit from our faithful obedience and living as the people of God and declaring the gospel of God. In fact, if you fast forward to Revelation 7 and that picture of what is to come, there are more of these tribal names. In fact, they're the same names of the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And what do we find? Well, there's not 70 there. There's 144,000 there. Again, not a head count, but a figurative count representing the fullness of the number of souls to be saved. Do you see yourself there? As you look forwards, children of Christ's promise, justified by faith in Christ, the Savior, who will be there indeed because of your faith, because you took God's promise of his presence with you and his word for your mouth and his heart to be your heart for the nations, for the people around you who do not believe the gospel that he calls us to reach. How many will be there because of you? How many will be there because of my obedience? It's a question for us to reflect on, brothers and sisters. And doesn't a global pandemic remind us of the necessity and the urgency of mission? It does, for sure. Can I encourage you to look to God for reassurance and certainty on what you should do with your life? Look to God through the means of grace for what those promises are, to lay hold of them by faith, never ever let them go, and live your life accordingly, just as if he had already fulfilled them, because he will. Look to God through the means of grace, the Bible read, studied, and preached, prayer, personal, corporate, and often, the church, God's people, urging, inspiring, encouraging, supporting one another, through baptism and the Lord's Supper, uh, believing and entering and remembering once for all the sacrifice that Christ made to make it possible. Look for the reassurances of his promise and live like they're true. It's hard, right? We need each other. We need his spirit. We are so overinflated with that sense of our own self-importance. Who are you? Who am I? Let's pray that we can encourage one another to be all about Christ. Well, the Lord's promises to, the Lord promises to bless those who live like that, who live by faith. And we can look for evidence of that blessing as we live. Fruit, if you like. And that's what we see in this large section from chapter 46, verse 28, through to the end of 47. This is the second point. Again, that the promise still stands, but look for evidence, evidence of blessing. Now, we don't have time to go into all the details of this section. So let me just present to you the evidence in some kind of summary. There are three things in this large section that show us that God keeps his promise to bless people while living as strangers in a foreign land, just like Jacob and his people were, and just like we do, because this isn't our home. Okay, this is our temporary dwelling. We look forward to our permanent dwelling 
in heaven. But there are three things in this passage that shows this. The first is the unity of God's people. Verses 28 to 30, the unity of God's people show us that's evidence of the fruit of obedience and God's blessing. Now, 28 to 30 shows what happened when Jacob is reunited with Joseph. It's an absolute tearjerker. Uh, I don't know if you saw the BBC video online the other day of an Indonesian boy uh, being reunited with his mother after 15 years of separation. A whole host of terrible circumstances that led to them being separated. He didn't have any documents. He didn't have any way of getting in contact with anyone. Uh, He was only five or something like that whenever they were torn apart. You should watch it. It's still online. But watch what happens when they show you them being reunited, seeing each other for the first time, how their faces and their bodies act. I mean, there are, as you would expect, tons of tears that are wailing with joy. At various points, there are people fainting. You know, the knees go, go wobbly. It's a beautiful thing to see. And that's how I picture this family being reunited. And it's important that they are because the unity of this family was crucial to God's plan for blessing them and the nations. They are reunited. They are reconciled. After all the threats that we've seen from Genesis 37 up to this point, Joseph being sold off into slavery, Judah off he went to the land of the pagans, living as the pagans do. We've seen many trials and tribulations, loads of things that threatened the future and the success of God's people. But here they are reunited and reconciled. When you know the backstory, you just think, wow, God is in this. And their oneness is not only for their good, of course, it is actually for God's glory. God's people together are the focal point through which he displays his existence and his character to Egypt and to the nations. You see this even in the book of Exodus, when they are delivered through the wonderful work of God, through the, through the, the plagues, and through crossing from death to life. What do we hear? You know, there are people like Rahab who say, we know what your God's all about. You know, we see what God has done. His glory is made known and displayed to the nations. That was his plan for ethnic Israel. That's his plan for his church today. And our unity is key to that. As John 17 shows us, what did Jesus pray for as he gave the gospel to his church and set it on its journey to the ends of the earth? He said, in prayer to the Father, I pray also for those who will believe in me through, that is the apostles' message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. So unity is a sign of God's blessing. So it begs the question then, what gets in the way of that? What do we need to get rid of? Even as a church family, we've got to think carefully about these things. Reconciliation is always high in the agenda. Neither sin nor offense can be easily entertained, especially if it develops a root of bitterness and hatred. Forgiveness is necessary. Mercy and grace are to be characteristic in churches that are truly united. I believe we enjoy that now, but we must continue to work at it.
The second evidence that, uh, piece of evidence that we see in this section is the provision that's made for God's people. This long section shows how God's chosen family were provided for. And it is absolutely astonishing, really. When you, when you read through it carefully and you figure out what's being said, it is amazing. In time of famine, God's people are given food. In a time of recession, God's people are given jobs. In a time of basically national repossession, they are given homes. And in a time of slavery, they're given freedom. It's incredible. When you compare what happens to Egypt and their people, and you see what's happening to God and his people, it's evidence of his blessing on them. And at the heart of it all, of course, coordinating it all, you might say sovereignly controlling it all, is Joseph, the one man, held up throughout this passage as a man of great wisdom, and held up by the end of the passage by the people of Egypt, nonetheless, as an absolute savior. Now, everyone in this passage is blessed by his actions. Israel, in this land of Goshen, northeast of Egypt, uh, in the northeast of Egypt, perfectly positioned for livestock, perfectly positioned for a great escape 400 years later, actually. And what happens as a result? Well, the summary is in verse 27. The Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increase greatly in number. Sound familiar? Genesis 1:28. What the Lord himself said to Adam and Eve. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase, increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Ah, that thing that was fractured from the very beginning. Even now, towards the end of Genesis, we haven't even got all past the first book of the Bible yet. And God's starting to show us how he's going to heal the cracks. And here's Pharaoh, already the most powerful man in the world, of course. But after Joseph's plan to reserve grain and then sell grain, his wealth and his power grew even more. So even he's blessed through the wisdom and the saving acts of Joseph. And the Egyptians also are blessed. Everybody's blessed. Now, you might object to that, saying, how can they be blessed? It's, it sounds a bit like they're selling themselves into slavery. But I guess the answer to that is in the taxes that Joseph set up. Now, if someone is enslaved, they get really nothing of what they grow or rear. But here, they get 80% of what they grow or rear. Joseph sets it up so Pharaoh only gets 20%. Do you know what we call that in the UK? Income tax, okay? Income tax. The Egyptians became effectively Pharaoh's workforce and compared to the nations around them where those slaves, those workforce got either nothing or the tiniest amount for themselves. This is why they say in verse 25, their opinion is, you, Joseph, you have saved our lives. And this is the way that God rules us, his church today. We can look for evidence of this. How does it come to us? Again, through the new and better Joseph, through a man of great wisdom, held up before us as a great and absolute savior. 1 Corinthians 1 tells us about the wisdom. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ doesn't just say Christ has the wisdom of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
He is the man of great wisdom par excellence. Titus chapter 3 tells us about his salvation. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. And if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I really hope this is starting to blow your mind. Because I think that you maybe think of Jesus as some guy who wore sandals 2,000 years ago, who walked around and did lots of cool stuff. You thought, well, actually, he's like a moral teacher. Maybe he's a bit like Gandhi in that respect or something. He is way wiser than you have ever known. Wiser than the sum total of every brain cell in humanity. And yet so humble, more humble than the lowliest acts that any human being could offer. He gave his life as a ransom for you. If you would turn to him in faith, believing in him, as he holds out a promise to you of forgiveness for your sin and life in his name now and forever. He is the man of great wisdom, but we look for wisdom in all the wrong places. My encouragement for you tonight look to Christ. And we look for salvation in all the wrong places, in all the wrong things. Look to Christ, who alone can save. The third evidence of God's blessing in this passage is in verses 28 to 31, on the focus of God's people. Now, in Egypt, God is still foremost in Jacob's worship. That's important to note. In verses 7 to 12, Jacob stands before the most powerful man in all the earth, but he, the patriarch, holds court. He's the one blessing Pharaoh. Verses 7 and 10, Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Jacob blessed Pharaoh. It's brilliant. He speaks with the earthly authorities, to the earthly authorities with respect and honor, of course, but still recognizes the Lord's sovereignty and his own place in the world. He knows someone greater than Pharaoh, and so do we. And in Egypt, of course, heaven is still foremost in Jacob's heart and eyes. Do you notice how Jacob described his life to Pharaoh? A pilgrimage as a man journeying towards a destination that holds some kind of promise for people who get there. That's what a pilgrimage is. Verse 9, the years of my pilgrimage, he said, have be, are 130. The years have been few and difficult, and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. He's talking about Abraham and Isaac. Now, he's not just talking about wandering to and from the promised land of Canaan, he's actually looking beyond that. That's what we see in verses 28 to 31 in this closing scene with Jacob and Joseph. He's thinking about where he's going to be, in a sense, buried. Now, we have these kind of conversations, don't we? I don't know. Well, maybe our family does, certainly. You know, mostly it's about burial or cremation. Now, what's better? You know, what's more biblical and all that kind of stuff? But what we see in here is this promised land still holds promise for Jacob. That's why he wanted to be buried there. But for him, really, 
It was symbolic of what lay ahead of something that still lies ahead of us. And Hebrews 11, 13 to 16 tells us exactly what it is. It says of Jacob and his forefathers, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting they were foreigners and strangers on earth. In other words, in a land not their own. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of their own country, of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has. Past tense. He has prepared a place for them. When the better country of the new heaven and new earth, the place where righteousness dwells, is our focus, we can worship. We can take God's word and live like it's true, no matter what this world throws at us. We can worship at any age and stage. And I would say especially so when death looms near. This is what's in Jacob's mind. We can, like him, muster whatever strength we have as we look forward to glory beyond the time that this mobile home is gone and the substantial permanent dwelling is our own, the heavenly body. We can look forward even to what our death ushers us into, the new heaven and new earth where we will be with God's. We will be his people. He will be our gods. So friends, God offers us great promises for what is to come. We ought to live like they are true now. But at the same time, look for evidence of the fruit of those promises in our lives right now. For all the ways that he is blessing us. In so many ways. You have faith today. Will you go to bed tonight still believing in Jesus? Ah, there's evidence for you right there. Don't go to sleep without thanking him. You endure through suffering. You're still believing after all these years. Ah, praise God. That is a gift to you. Give him praise and glory. You brought someone along to Christianity Explored? They're going to read the Bible with you now? Ah, oh, praise God. That is wonderful. Evidence of his blessing right before our eyes. So worship God in response with whatever strength you have. This old boy tottered to his feet and had to lean on his walking stick. But nothing would stop him from worshiping God. Dare I say, not even coronavirus. And through the only Savior we have, Jesus Christ, the wisdom and power of God, give him glory and live for him. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray.